Welcome to Conversation with Priya. I'm your host, Priya Mishra. Today, our guest is Brom William. She is known as a bias especially. She is engaged in developing Facebook program and delivering a strategic using various tools, such as digital presentation workshop and conferences. I'm not creating an awareness on the already existing concept of bias in corporate world. Prone gives her leadership in the question they need to ask so they can acknowledge, identify, and address the bias that hurt them, their staffs and businesses that keep them stuck and impact performance. She believes it is then that leaders have the strength and optimism for future growth. She has authored two books titled I Have Seen the Moon and Powered by Your Past. Both the books are reflective of her learnings from working and the asylum seeker on the Pacific island of Nuru and experience of her past. As of her personal details, she is a family of three sons and two daughters in the laws and six grandchildren. She lives in Melbourne in Victoria. So help me to welcome our guest, Ron Williams. Hello, Bron. Um, thank you for joining in today. Welcome to my show, Conversation with Priya. I would like to ask your journey today before we go into further questions. Okay, my journey. Well, let's, um, let's start with my hair. You can see by the colour of my hair that I've been around the planet, around the sun uh, for quite a few decades. Sure. So, um, yeah, I have a family, I have grandchildren. So that's a, that's a wonderful aspect of my life. In a past life, I was a teacher. So I did, was in the education sphere for many, many years. And in, um, in my 50s, I joined the Salvation Army and trained um, as a Salvation Army officer, became a um, minister of religion. And it was while I was working with the Salvation Army in Canberra that the uh, Australian Federal Government reopened the offshore processing centre for asylum seekers on Nauru and Banners Island and the Salvation Army was uh, asked to provide the welfare services to the asylum seekers. So uh, an email went round to all staff and officers asking for volunteers to go for four weeks. Now, I put my hand up, not because I had a burning desire to work with refugees or to work in the tropics because Nauru is 35 kilometres south of the equator, Uh, But really because I couldn't think of any reason why not to. Yeah. And it's so often these little serendipitous sorts of uh, decisions that we make that go on to have literally life-changing consequences. So I I jumped on the plane in Brisbane in the middle of the night. We rock up into, into Nauru, into the really bright tropical sunlight. You know, it's bouncing off the tarmac. It's, you know, 80% humidity. And I'm thinking, what have I got myself in for? I, you know, I'm here for four weeks. Yeah. We had a, we had a full day's um, orientation. And the last thing we had to do was to go down into the camp. Now, this was green army tents, you know, mesh fence, security guards. So it was a camp. And as I'm walking around with my group, just sort of being oriented to where we were going to work, I was getting this sort of visceral feeling in my gut, a bit of a churning, and I didn't understand why. But as I reflected on it over the next couple of weeks, I realised that that was actually um, a fear reaction, that I was afraid. And it wasn't because these men would actually hurt me. Yeah. They were asylum seekers. They had suffered huge trauma. But it was just purely because they were different. Like I'd grown up in a white monocultural Bible Belt area of Sydney, 
yeah. hadn't mixed with many people of um, that were other than white. And here were these men who were from Sri Lanka, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran and Iraq, so very different countries, yeah. all speaking languages that I didn't understand because, hello, I only speak English. Um, and, you know, different skin colour and most of them were Muslim and I'd been brought up in the Christian tradition. So yeah. they were just different and I realised took me a while and it was quite confronting to realise that the woman who wouldn't have said she had a racist bone in her body actually had a latent racism purely from growing up yeah. in this very monocultural area and not being exposed. Yeah. So I had this sense the difference was a threat mm. to mm. me. That was quite confronting. Yeah, yeah. So you started and that's where your journey started towards your, you know, inclusion of bias, yeah? Yeah, it is. Look, I wouldn't have even, I don't think I even knew the word bias. So that was 2012. Um, I asked for a permanent uh, appointment on Nauru yeah. from the Salvation Army and went back in 2013 for eight months as the religious liaison officer. So right. I was responsible for the religious needs of yeah. all the asylum seekers. By that stage, there were men, women and children on the island. And as I was working with the Nauruans who were on our team and just mm-hmm. observing how us whiteies were uh, reacting to the Nauruans, I realised we all, including myself, had this sense of superiority. It was like, well, yeah. hello, first world country, university educated, therefore we know better. And one day I sat down with Fatima, who headed up the Nauruan team for the Salvation Army and talked to her about that. Now, her words just floored me because she said, oh, we know that about you guys, but we just accept it. It was like a body blow. I'm thinking, oh, we really are (laughs) that, you know, we really are that bad. And when I went home, I started to explore what all this meant and came across the concept of white privilege and of bias and so I actually had to own the fact that I, I have white privilege. I didn't ask for it. It's just part of me growing up as a white person, but that I'm also racist. And, again, I didn't intend to be, I don't, didn't mean to be, but it's part of my outlook just from how I was, how I was raised, even though my parents were really very kind, nice people. But just there's all these unconscious influences So that was really, for me, the personal experiences that started me uh, on this road. Yeah, and that, right. So there there are not many people are working in that space and owning that that, um, fact, which you are right now. Mm. In in bias is an issue that is unfortunately common in the workplace of today. What inspired you to focus on this area of speciality? What needs to be done to tackle an eradicated bias, you know? Yeah. So what inspired me was literally my own experiences because this that changed my life. Yeah. Because I started to see that, gosh, look, I'm just an ordinary Aussie girl from the Sutherland Shire in, in Sydney. I've lived in Canberra. I now live in Melbourne. But, you know, I'm just an ordinary Aussie girl. I'm, and I thought there's got to be a lot of other people out there who are like me who are experiencing these things. Yeah. And I knew it, I knew I needed to change. And I've always been a sort of person who's a purpose-driven person. You know, and I'm thinking, I want this to be better. 
Because yeah. I've come to realise that bias lies at the heart of all injustice and inequality. Yeah. And because those things are passionate for me, it's been part of why I was in the Salvation Army, mm. then this becomes, this is a personal issue. and yeah. But it's one that I want to help other people. Yeah, yeah. And I've gone into the corporate space purely because corporates in many ways run the world. They have huge influence um, in so many areas of our life. And if I can help the leaders, so boards, executive teams, to yeah. understand about their own bias at a personal level but also about the bias that exists within their companies that's actually damaging both yeah. their reputations, their staff, their leadership, their, and also the bottom line, if I can help them see that, then I will do my small part to yeah. make a world a better place. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's not about being white or any other color. It's being about how you perceive the people who you are meeting, you know, how you're going to actually create a perception and how you're going to be, be more inclusive towards whole human race you know oh I completely agree my uh, my partner is a very conservative traditional white Aussie male yeah and so he often struggles he will say something because he works with um, Indians and Sri Lankans in his yeah. workplace mm -hmm. um, and he'll say oh is this racist and then he just talks about them being an Indian or about something about their culture and I say no that's not it's not being racist to notice the differences. Like, yeah. hello, I can see that your skin colour is different to mine. It's not racist to notice the difference. Yeah. Your culture, yeah. cultural background is different to mine. That's not racist. Yeah. It's when we attribute a moral value. If yeah. I say all Indians are and then add something negative, yeah. that's being racist. Yeah. Or if I won't get to know you or talk to you because I distrust you because you've got a different skin colour, that's being racist. Yeah. That's the difference. Hello, I've worn glasses all my life. I got bullied as a kid because I wear glasses. But, you know, I'm still a person, I would, but I was different. So yeah. it's when yeah. we use those differences to put other people down, to hurt other people, that's, mm. that's when we've got bias. That's when our bias is having a negative impact. Yeah, generalising, you know, creating that, you know, stereotype uh, mindset. Absolutely. A lot yes. of time. You know, I've been like, a lot of time I met, meet people, um, I should not mention that, but when I met initially, so I said, oh, isn't it Indians are like darker skin? You know, I'm like, India, have you seen India? Like you go every part of the India, you will get every shape and size and a colour of Indians. That's <laughs> So, you know, there are people who are seven feet tall and there are people who are four feet tall as well. So, you know, you can't generalise that. <laughs> so. well, you know, I've got a very a, a great friend who um, was born and raised in Sri Lanka and I worked with an, um, an Australian man of Sri Lankan heritage when I was on Nauru. Now, Tara has skin very similar to yours, probably a little bit lighter. Mm. Patrick is as black as black as black. It's just like, and they're both from the same little island. You go, how does that happen? You know, so, yeah, skin colour is just 
what yeah, it is. It's matter of how you exposed, how your genetics are, and all. It's there are so many right. other factors, scientific factors involved. You know, <laughs> so, over which you have no control. No control. So, yeah, but generalizing by the community, it's okay to have a generic understanding how overall culture works, and that's yeah. also define your overall culture of yeah. your uh, upbringing in the corporate as well. Like you creating a company culture. But that's all all good. There is a family culture, there is a company culture, there is a whole country culture, you know. But then you can't have that stereotype mindset, you know. Um, you know people individually will be much better work. Oh, very much so. And I certainly out of my work on Nauru, I've got to know some of the, the asylum seekers who are now uh, living in Melbourne and starting to understand aspects of their faith. Yeah, why they think the way they do, and yeah. for some of them who were Muslim only because they grew up in a Muslim country, once they're in Australia, they've left that faith basis behind because it actually has no value for them okay. as an individual, and they've got the freedom to make that choice now. It yeah, it, it is. I mean, yeah, see, there are a lot of people are turning towards atheists, like they, they don't want to be known as a religion, like from identified by a religious belief, right? So. It's, uh, younger generation is changing a lot if you look at that way, you know. So it's a different world altogether. You have had quite an experience in working with asylum seeker in Nauru. Do yes. you think that modern day migration makes any senses or is it something that government needs to stop by creating better facilities at home? Well, I, th I think actually um, asylum seekers and migrants are two different people. Because migrants uh, make the choice to leave, you know, they pack up their home, they apply for a visa, um, you know, they get on an aeroplane generally, and they move to another country to intentionally make a new home. Asylum seekers are generally forced out of their home country because of unrest, persecution, famine, um, you know, those sorts of things where it becomes untenable for yeah. them to live in their home. And, you know, we've only have to look at what has happened um, with Syrian refugees um, that have, you know, moved across uh, to Europe. Yeah. And just the level of uh, the, the, the movement of asylum seekers and refugees in the Middle East, you yeah. know, it, it's huge, and also in Africa. And yeah. then we, of course, have experienced it here um, in Australia with people coming by boat. Yeah. which, you know, um, our governments have done different things to address. So uh, it's a huge problem. Yeah. Asylum seekers will only be, uh, feel safe to stay, people mm -hmm. only feel safe to stay in their countries when their countries are stable. Yeah. Now, there's so much interplay between the, the West and the East mm -hmm. uh, and the Middle East, you know, here in Australia, we have an untroubled uh, society. But when we send our troops to the Middle East to involve ourselves in one way or another in the conflicts there, we are contributing to the asylum seeker issues, yeah, the refugee yeah. issues. And so we've got to take some responsibility there. So it's, yeah, like Australians aren't living Australia because we're... Um, you know, it's a terrible place to live. We might choose to go and live somewhere else in the world because we want to do that. So, yes, stability at home is, a, is good 
But while ever there are conflicts, famines, poverty, and some of that has to do with how governments manage their countries. Yeah. Until those things are addressed, we're, I think we're going to continue to see the movement of displaced people. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, um, that that brings to, like, after that, your Naru work, you actually come, like, you started working more towards the leadership and the corporate. What's in your world describes good leadership? Do you see firm and decisive leaders as the driving force for corporate success? Okay. I do believe that leaders need to have vision, clarity of vision. They need to have be able to make good decisions. They also need to be able to delegate responsibilities and trust the teams that they delegate that responsibility to. However, I don't, I think leadership comes in a variety of different forms. Um, again, I to a certain extent, this does come back to where bias comes yeah. into play because by and large, well, for millennia, men have been the leaders in business because yeah. that was just the way it is. Um, and now women have been moving into business. Mm. Now, I believe men and women lead differently because yeah. our outlooks are different. Yeah. And it's not better or worse, it's just different. So yeah. I think as we start to understand that people lead differently, but also that some men have a different leadership style to other men. Some men are quite firm and decisive. Yeah. Other men are more collaborative. Women, yeah. uh, you know, by and large are more collaborative. So, yeah, I think it's about, I think the key for leadership is a couple of things. One is openness. We need to be, leaders need to be open to change, change yeah. in themselves and change in the corporations that they need. Yeah. And they need to be open to growth. Yeah. Both personally and um, corporately. So I think if... If there's an openness in a leader, it doesn't actually matter what their style is. Yeah. They will be able to uh, to lead well because they're learning. Mm-hmm. So that, that like, if coming women into the leadership is actually changing the percentage for sure. But I believe it's still miles to go on that sense, like inclusion of the women and feminine leaders in, in the workforce is, is still uh, not as, as a percentage are not as high as it should be. Mm. Uh, what do you think about it? How we can improve in that area? And do you think how, talking about this feminine thing is also, also creating a kind of a challenge for the men leaders and and the inclusion by the men party in the workplace is there any scarcity or a conscious um, behavioral problem is happening between the two uh, genders Mm, great question Um, I like to I liken the uh, corporate space to a sand pit or a, a sandbox that and that men have been playing in the sandbox for millennia. They made up the rules of play and as men move into the sandbox, they sort of somehow instinctively pick up the rules because they fit how they think. Now, women have been playing in the sandbox now for about, what, less than 100 years. Mm. We've been asked to play by the rules that have been set. And on the whole, I think we've tried to do that. But women are starting to realise that actually their way of leading or their way of deciding or their way of working is valid. Mm -hmm. And so they're starting to make this move now to say, how about we look at things from this perspective? Yeah. 
there does therein lies a challenge. There's two challenges. One, there is certainly a challenge for men who can feel threatened yeah. by people who think differently to mm. themselves. That said, there are so many good, strong male leaders who are open to new ways of looking at things, and so they are welcoming uh, women, women in leadership. Women, too, I think, are growing in confidence in their own leadership styles, in their own way of making decisions, realising that we don't actually have to play by the same rules. We don't have to be... Um, men in women's clothes or we don't you know we don't have to act the way a man does to be able to succeed in this space yeah yeah what and I think it's important to move it's important that we continue to move towards parity because everybody benefits when there is a balance for sure I I totally agree that you know unless there is a multiple perspective there is a less chance of growth you know yes um, so obviously it's it's again the innovation of the leadership because of the different brains and different kind of people are coming. Stop thinking about male or female. It's, it's start thinking like uh, like different individuals have the different perspective and they bring different things on the table and yes. that's how we can grow, I believe. You know? Yes, indeed. So uh, like in you, you have been in a creative communication professional for several years now. What have um, been the key takeaway for your career or what have been the significant learning over the years? Mm, I love that because my three core values are courage, creativity and connection. So that's what I'm about as a human being. And I do combine all of those uh, in my work in terms of communication, one of the things that I've learned in moving from a teaching space, which is didactic, pedantic sometimes, the uh, imparting of knowledge to where I am now more in the consulting and speaking space, yeah, where I a teacher teaches, uh, what I'm about is helping people to learn. And that was a shift that I needed to make. So that's probably the most important thing that I've that I have learnt myself is that mm-hmm. I need, while I may have knowledge that I want to impart and I want to do that well and communicate it, there is no real communication unless the other person has heard me. For sure. Yeah. And so that for me, and I think in terms of leadership as well, when we're as as leaders making decisions that we want to communicate, we need to be able to do it in the way that other people can hear. So whether that's on our team or down through the the ranks of staff and employees, because people will not follow you as a leader if they don't understand what it is that you're leading them to. Yeah. Um, It's important. Yeah, yeah. Very nice. So thank you so much for your um, conversation today. If you have to suggest your leaders for two cents uh, today, what would be your two cents today to the leadership to take away? Okay. All right. My, my big one, when addressing bias or being aware of bias, one way, the best way to mitigate it is to ask the next question. And by that, I mean, when you have to make a decision and you think you've got there, Just ask, who does this decision hurt? Who does this decision overlook? Because then you have the capacity to have a different perspective come into it. So, yeah, ask the next question.
Thank you. So thank you for joining in today. It was nice talking to you. I'm pretty sure there are a lot of things we have discussed which will be value-add to the leadership and the accommodating to the different cultures. And it's all about how you build your company culture. So it was nice talking to you and looking forward to hearing you again. Thank you so much for today. Great. Thanks, Priya. Thank you.